Well, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We are coming now to the end of this glorious chapter of John's Gospel. We have so far attempted to mine the gold out of the mountain of this chapter while knowing that we certainly have much yet to learn of the new birth, of the inadequacy of human effort, of the twin realities of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and so on and so on. I would like to remind us here at the beginning uh, once again of the purpose of this book. John writes at the end of chapter 20 that he has written all that he has written in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have certainly seen the importance of believing that Jesus is the Christ in this chapter. Believing in Jesus, trusting in his finished work on the cross, it is indeed the only way to see eternal life. And now as we come to these final verses, you, as, we read, as we will read through it here in just a moment, you'll see, you, you almost get a sense of this section being a sort of final closing arguments of what he has dealt with in this chapter closing arguments about why you should believe in the person of Jesus Christ. And he does so in this section by teaching us of the superiority of Christ. Some have said that John is writing this gospel with not just the evangelistic goal in mind that you would believe and be saved, but also that he has an apologetic goal in mind. In other words, that he wants to prove to the reader that Jesus is the Christ. So he's not just wanting you to be saved, he's also making proofs, and he does so from chapter 1, verse 1, through the end. In doing this, though, John draws out very important themes from Jesus' earthly ministry that point to his superiority. You see that all throughout this gospel. In chapter 4, we'll see that Jesus is better than water, because he's the living water. In chapter 2, we saw that he's better than the temple. In chapter 3, we're seeing that he's better than religious effort. In chapter 5, he's better than the Sabbath. Jesus is better than bread. In chapter 6, because he's the bread of life. He's even superior to light. In chapter 8, because he is the light of the world. On and on and on we could go. Needless to say, John is obsessed with showing forth the superiority of Christ. He's better than everything. One could say that our passage today is a sort of closing argument for all of this chapter, as I said a moment ago, but it's also going to serve as a point of reference for John's treatment of the superiority of Christ in the rest of the gospel. So, as we walk through these verses, verses 31 through 36, we're going to see that John presents four arguments for the superiority of Christ. With that in mind, please stand with your Bible in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John 3, 31 through 36, 
This is the word of the one true and living God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this word, I pray that you would help us to see, to understand, to grasp the truth that is contained here. Surely there will be only so much that we can see and only so much that we can talk about. But Lord, I pray that you would enlighten the hearts of our, our uh, the eyes of our heart, Lord, to see great and wonderful things in your word, and that we would love what we see, that we would be changed by what we see. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. The first argument for the superiority of Christ is that he is from heaven. It's from verse 31. I would like to begin by saying, though, that this is another section, just, in, just as in verses 16 through 21, where there is some disagreement regarding who is speaking. Some believe that this, these verses are still the words of John the Baptist. Depending on what Bible you have, your quotations might continue all the way through the end of the chapter, if you have the NASB. But the ESV, as I read from, uh, has the quotations ending at verse 30, that the last words of John the Baptist were, he must increase, but I must decrease. I am of the opinion that the, this is just commentary from John the author in the section that we're looking at, but just as in verses 16 through 21, the same holds true here, that it does not ultimately change the meaning of the passage, whether it was John the Baptist speaking or if it was John the Apostle writing his commentary, because ultimately this passage is not about who's speaking, but it's about who we're talking about. This passage is about Jesus. Look at the text with me. John writes in verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. And then he, at the end of the verse, he reiterates it, He who comes from heaven is above all. Right at the beginning of this section, we see John is focused on Jesus. That's his goal, is to get us to look at him, to point to the superiority of Christ. And he does this by making a very simple statement that is true on its face. It almost doesn't even need to be said because it's so obvious. He who is from above is above all. That's very clearly a true statement. This statement also reminds us of the fact that Jesus was sent to the earth. He, he was not simply born one day as you and I are born, where that's when we came into existence. No, Jesus was sent from heaven. He had his existence 
elsewhere and prior to the incarnation. If you remember, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word already was. The Word is eternal. He is everlasting, and He is from heaven. Remember the words of John the Baptist from chapter 1. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We talked about in that section that bizarre language was pointing to John's understanding that Christ is eternal. He ranks before me because he was before me. He existed before me because he's from heaven. John the Baptist knew of the superiority of Christ intimately. God sent him as the greatest and the last of all Old Testament prophets, not just to point to some future far-off coming of the Messiah, but to actually pave the way for the Christ. It is this deeply held understanding of the superiority of Christ that leads John the Baptist to say those precious words in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understands that he's no match for Jesus. It's like comparing the horsepower of a remote control car with a Mack truck. Or better, comparing the brightness of your favorite candle with the sun. There's no comparison. John the Baptist wasn't humble about his decreasing ministry only because he knew his role, but also because he understood the vast superiority of Christ to himself. Christ is above all. I love how Paul writes it in Colossians chapter 1. Some have said that this is actually an ancient Christological hymn. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And if that wasn't enough. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. The Christ would be above all. It's the first placeness, if you will, of Christ. But what about the book of Hebrews that we quoted from in the call to worship? The whole book of Hebrews goes on and on and on about how Christ is superior to everything. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the old sacrificial system, better than Melchizedek. Even the covenant that is ratified in his blood is better than the old covenant. And on and on and on and on and on he goes. Hebrews is a wonderful book that will set your heart ablaze for the superiority of Christ. So is it any wonder then why the song that we sing here, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, contains the line, He the theme of heaven's praises. Who are they worshiping in heaven? The same Christ that we worship here. John the Baptist had a Christ-centered ministry because he understood that Christ is above all. And any minister today, if he is to have a Christ-centered ministry, must hold to the same conviction. 
And any Christian who wants to live a Christ-centered life must believe wholeheartedly that Christ is above all. He's better than everything. Any sin that you might struggle with, Christ is better. Whatever religious activity you think to perform to earn the good graces of God, Christ is better. Any amount of money that we could earn, anything that we could achieve in this life, Christ is above all because he is from above. John contrasts this glorious truth of Christ being from above and above all with, look at it with me, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. What a stark contrast. He who is from above is above all. He who is from the earth is, belongs to the earth and he speaks like it. John begins with his high Christology, speaking of the word in eternity past in John chapter 1, verse 1. And then if you remember, when he then in verse 6 turns to speak of John the Baptist, we're here in eternity, the word is eternal, he was with God, he's the light, he's the life of men. Verse 6, there was a man who was sent from God. There was a man. It's the same kind of idea, the same kind of contrast here. John the Baptist, when we think about him, he was prophesied of in the Old Testament. He was an, there was an angel sent from heaven who proclaimed his coming to his parents. Did that happen to any of you? That an angel came and visited you to tell you that your child was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah? This child was filled from the, with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, pointing Israel to come back to God. He had a great and powerful ministry, and Jesus even calls John the Baptist the greatest man to be born of a woman. But here John tells us very clearly he is of the earth. As great as he was among men, he will never rise above being of the earth. It's as one person has said it, the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. The word earth here, it does not carry any necessarily moral connotations. And I say that because you know, we hear the word world and we think of the worldly system, the fallen system. We think of fallen humanity, but this just means earth. He's just saying you're from the planet. You're from the created order. Jesus came from heaven Everyone else is from this third rock, from the sun. Notice that John's, John adds, and he belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. It's not enough that we're of the earth, we even talk like it. What does that mean? I have a pastor friend who's from the UK, and you wouldn't need to be told that. You would just need to speak with him, and you would immediately know that he's not from around these parts. And how would you know? Because he has a very fancy accent, the kind of accent where everything he says sounds brilliant. He says T, and you're like, wow, that is just amazing. Wow. He speaks in a different way. And so everything that he says is colored by that accent. But further than that, because he's not from America, he doesn't think like Americans. I don't know if you knew that. But all of us think like an American. Not everybody thinks the way that we think. 
for better or for worse, that's a different discussion. But it's the same thing here. Our earthliness, our finiteness, our limited humanity affects every aspect of us, even our speech. But again, this isn't referring to sinful speech necessarily. Even when we're saying good things and we're ascribing to God the glory due His name, our earthliness shines through in how we speak and what we speak about. We're earthly. Think of Christ in His ministry, for example. He was entirely focused, laser-focused on what God the Father had sent Him to do. He was entirely focused on heavenly things, and he spoke like it. Everything that he said was God-centered. Everything that he said was glorifying to God. But you and I are not so because we're of the earth. Even when we say good things, we fall short of capturing the fullness of the glory of God. Accurately describing and portraying how amazing our God is. It's no wonder that the officers, when they came, they were supposed to bring Jesus to the Pharisees, and instead they heard him teach, and they were amazed. They came back to the Pharisees, and they reported, the Pharisees are saying, what happened? Where, where is he? And all that they could say is, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like him. He's not from here. He is clearly not of the earth. They are. We speak in earthly ways, in limited ways. We're so short-sighted even on our best day. Jesus said it this way to the Pharisees in chapter 8. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. World, The fact that our earthliness is shown in our speech is a testimony to how pervasive our earthliness is. If you think about Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord, you know what the first words out of his mouth are? Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I am so utterly ruined by sin. It is so pervasive in my life that it shows forth in my speech. After all, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so that's what we're talking about here is that we are so, we are so utterly earthly that even in the way we talk never rises above earthliness. Jesus, however, is from heaven and speaks in a heavenly way, if I could say it that way. And that's why Peter can say on behalf of the group in chapter 6, where else is there for us to go? For you have the words of life. But the second argument that he makes here is that he is a faithful witness. Jesus is superior to everyone, and that's why you should believe in him. Here's an argument. He is a faithful witness. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, how sad and tragic, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus is from heaven, and being from heaven, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. In John chapter 8, verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen 
with my Father. I speak of what I have seen with my Father. In other words, Jesus isn't, didn't walk around the earth coming up with his own version of religion or his own idea of God. A lot of people like to pit the earthly ministry of Jesus against the Old Testament and say it was a different God back there. We just look at Jesus and filter everything through that. But my friends, the whole entire Bible is red letters. It is all the words of God, every last bit of it. But when Jesus was here, he did not speak of his own accord, but he spoke the words of God. He spoke of what he has seen and heard. He was intimately acquainted with the truth because as he tells us, he is truth. He is truth itself. Not merely, it's not merely an adjective that he's truthful. He is truth. Look back at verse 11, chapter 3, 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Sounds a lot like what he's saying here. Nicodemus did not receive the testimony of Christ, though it was born from heaven, and he wasn't alone. Though Jesus is the faithful witness, as reliable a witness as anyone could ever hope to have, here John tells us the very sad report that no one received his testimony. What does that mean? No one believed him. No one believed that what he had to say was true. They heard the words of the faithful and true witness who is the walking embodiment of truth and they thought it was folly. They thought it was nonsense. Some even thought it was blasphemy. People rejected the light because they loved the darkness. And friends, it's the same way today. The way that this verse is written, the, the verbs that are used here, that he bears witness, indicates that he's continuing to bear witness, that he still bears witness today. And though he is not here embodied in person, how does he bear witness to the world today? It's through the scriptures, the Bible, it bears witness to the world of everything that Christ has said, of all of the truth that God intends for humanity to know. And still, people don't receive it. They don't believe it. We find the full written testimony of the faithful and true witness to all he has ever seen and heard. And people still reject his testimony. It's always been like this, friends. Isaiah chapter 30, God is indicting the people. He says they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. You understand, people love to hear the wonderful, encouraging things of the Lord, but fewer want to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Friends, though we might not ever hear anybody say that today, when they reject the testimony the written testimony of the faithful and true witness, what they are saying is 
let us hear no more about this Holy One of Israel. Let us hear no more. Tell us smooth things. You know what that means? Why don't you put some sugar on those words? Give me some of that sugar-coated stuff. Lie to me. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The very fact that Christ had to come at all, friends, that the one who is above all had to come to this earth to suffer, bleed, and die for sinners is itself an indictment on the sinfulness of mankind. That there was nothing that we could do of our own accord. It required God, the word eternal, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What's even worse is that those who hear the true testimony of the faithful witness go on to reject it. Why is that worse? Look at the second half of that verse. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So if, if receiving the testimony of Jesus means acknowledging that God is true, because that's what he's saying here, that if you receive his testimony, you're setting your seal, in other words, it's a way of speaking of your seal of approval, that God is true, you're acknowledging that God is true, then rejecting the testimony of Jesus means that you are saying that God is a liar. 1 John 5.10 Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Have you ever thought of it in these terms? That to not believe in Jesus, to not believe in Christ, is to call God a liar. It's to say that he's not true. It's to say that everything that he said is a lie. Now, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who do not believe in Jesus who would not say they believe that God is a liar. That's exactly what John is teaching us here. Belief and unbelief in Jesus are ultimately about whether we believe that what God says is true or if it's a lie. There's not a middle ground here where maybe some of it, maybe not this, maybe some, maybe that. You either accept it wholesale or you reject him and you call him a liar. Why? Because God himself has borne witness to his son. We saw that in the prophets of the Old Testament that prophesy of the coming one. But what about what we see in Jesus' birth? An angel came to Mary. An angel appeared to Joseph. The host of angels appeared out in the field singing praises that the the king is here. And also at the baptism of Jesus, the father audibly spoke from heaven. Do you know what he said? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Son, so then if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if he's not the Son of God, if he's not the only way to the Father, then not only are we calling Jesus a liar, but we're also calling the Father a liar. We're calling God a liar. John 5, 37, this is what Jesus said. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
This is where, I don't know if you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis's trilemma, but it's so profound here. He presents three possible choices of, of what to do with the historical person of Jesus, that you have to come to one of three conclusions, that he was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. Either he lied about everything, because he can't just be a great teacher, friends. He claimed to be the Son of God. So either he was a flat-out liar, or maybe he was a lunatic, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Maybe we don't want to call him a liar. Maybe he was just crazy. He can't just be a great teacher, a great moral example. He has to either be a liar or a lunatic, because he said great, incredible things, made great claims. Or what he said is true, and he's Lord. We have to come to one of those three conclusions. How would you answer that question? How you answer is literally the difference between eternal life or eternal condemnation. John tells us here that if we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, if we believe that he is who God says he is, then we are affirming the truthfulness of God. We are not making God to be truthful but we are acknowledging and recognizing that God cannot lie. That he's the very source of truth. So if he said, this is my son, my beloved son, if, if he said that he sent this son to suffer, bleed, and die, and if the son affirmed all that the father said and spoke the words of the father, then I believe it. And I believe that's true, because I know that there is no truth in this world without God. So let every man be a liar and let only God be true. The third argument that he makes for the superiority of Christ and why you should believe in Christ is because he possesses the fullness of the Spirit. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The first half of this verse ties into what we were just covering regarding the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we add another layer of understanding that Jesus is the faithful witness because he's uttering the very words of God. The writer of Hebrews, I guess we're going to talk about Hebrews a lot today. The writer of Hebrews tells us that long ago and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, the Son utters the very words of God. That's why in chapter 1, if you remember, one of the things that we said of John using the term logos or calling Jesus the Word, it was because he was indicating that Jesus is the final and full expression of all that God desired to say and reveal to mankind. Then, of course, who can forget the Mount of Transfiguration when, once again, the Father bears witness to His Son, and He says once again, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And He follows it up with, listen to Him. Listen to Him. The Father spoke through His Son, and what He has said he continues to say to generation after generation in the pages of Holy Scripture. 
But then John gives us something here in this verse that has often been misconstrued. He says that he gives the Spirit without measure. The he here, obviously, is referring to God the Father. The Father gives the Spirit without measure. Now, what does that mean? Many have taken this to say that God gives us the Spirit without measure. But friends, would it make any sense in just in using basic flow of logic that he utters the words of God speaking of Jesus and then he abruptly turned to say that he gives us the Spirit without measure? That, that doesn't flow even in the flow of thought. The subject at hand is Christ. He's uttering the words of God because the Father has given the Spirit to him without measure. As you could imagine, that type of understanding typically comes from the more charismatic types who think that the Holy Spirit is some sort of mystical force that empowers us to do signs and wonders and prophesy and speak in tongues. They say that you need to pursue this sort of higher level of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, once you are, then you can truly be Spirit-led. But until then, you've only been given a little bit of the Spirit, just enough to be saved. And you can't be led by that much of the Spirit. You need to pursue more, greater fillings of the Spirit, because He gives the Spirit without measure. Friends, this has nothing here to do with how the Spirit indwells believers. It has everything here to do with Christ. What John is referring to here is that the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. All believers are indwelt with the Spirit, and we can all receive a measure of the Spirit's empowerment for particular tasks. But Christ possessed the fullness of, of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, that means without measure. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means the whole fullness in the incarnation was in Christ Jesus, not just a portion and not just for a time, not just for a season, but he possesses the fullness of deity, the spirit without measure. We want to be very careful here because there are some who will say that Jesus did everything he did on this earth as a man in right relationship with God. We reject that. That is a heretical statement. Jesus was not a mere man like you and I. In the incarnation, he was fully God and fully man. And this text teaches us that Christ possessed the spirit without measure as it was given to him without measure. So I would argue that John wants us to see here the triune God working in perfect harmony. Look at the text with me. I want you to see something. Look at the end of verse 34. He gives the spirit... Without measure, the Father loves the Son. Who is mentioned here? Spirit, Father, and Son. You notice that sometimes he refers to the Father as God, and other times he refers to him specifically as Father. We see the Spirit and the Father and the Son are all actively involved in the plan of redemption. The Father appointed to send the Son, the Son 
came, the Spirit came to the Son. That is to say that all three persons of the Godhead are actively involved in some way in the plan and the outworking of redemption, even in Christ's incarnation. Surely we could spend the rest of the day here, but let's just say that this is a strong argument for the superiority of Christ. But John puts the exclamation point here in verse 35. Look at it with me. The Father loves the Son and has given all things in his hand. The fourth and final argument is that he possesses all authority. All things have been given into the hand of the Son. The one who comes from above is above all because he reigns above all. And because the Father loves the Son, he has given all things into his hand. That language indicates to us that all things are for Christ to possess. All things are his now. And it indicates that he has not taken it back. Christ is superior to all things because he reigns over all things. But this was prophesied, wasn't it? Psalm 2, 7 and 8. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Don't you hear the love of the father for his son? Ask of me. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In other words, not just a little, I just won't, it's not just a new car, right? It's not just a, a new throne in heaven. It's not just a new little thing. I will give you everything for you to possess. God gave him everything. This is the psalmist looking back into eternity past when this interaction would have taken place, and he's also looking forward to the fulfillment of it. John, in our text, is looking back at this now having been fulfilled. He's writing this after the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. Christ has come from heaven. The word has become flesh. He has borne the punishment of his people. He has died. He's risen from the grave. And he's now exalted at the right hand of the Father where he must reign until God has made Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28 after his resurrection, all Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In Ephesians 1.21, Paul is speaking of the Father raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand. And it says that he is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. Christ rules above all, all of it. I love the way that Abraham Kuyper said, Quote, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All of it is his. Church, we do not serve a wimpy God. 
We do not serve an ambiguous force of power. We do not serve a God who is trying his hardest to keep things in order. We serve a God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We serve a God who has conquered hell, death, and the grave. We serve a God who reigns supreme even right now. Christians have no need to fear public pressure, persecution, affliction, suffering, suffering, government overreach, loss, famine, poverty, or even death. Do you know why? Because Christ is king. All things have been given into his hand. question before you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is king? Do you believe that he rules and reigns today? Church, believing this truth changes everything. It changes how you speak. It changes how you love your neighbor. It changes how you act. It changes how you react to situations. It changes your eternal destination. Which leads us into this final statement that John makes in verse 36. John calls us to make a verdict. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John has given us four arguments for the superiority of Christ, but at the end of the day, truth is not given to us that we might simply hold on to it in our brains. We are accountable to and for the truth that we know. Truth is given to us that we might believe it and be changed thereby. So, in his usual black and white fashion, John presents two decisions. You can make one of these two decisions. You can believe in the Son and you can have eternal life. Or you can disobey the command to believe and remain under the wrath of God. There is not a third option, you see. There's not a, well, I'm kind of in the middle, I'm figuring things out here and there. You are either believing in the Son and possessing eternal life, or you are disobeying the command to believe and currently abiding under the wrath of God. After all, if you reject the testimony of God, Christ, you call God a liar. There is not a third option. Notice, too, that John says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Have you ever thought about the reality that the gospel call is a command? Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are imperative verbs. These are commands. Repent and believe. Jesus is not saying, man, it would sure be great if you would. Man, I, I, I'd really like it if you would believe in me, you know? I tried really hard to make myself likable. He is, as king, commanding our repentance and commanding our belief. And he's not suggesting that he can just give you a better way of life. He's commanding that all of the world bow to his kingship by repenting of their sins and putting their trust in him. Isn't this what Paul said in the Areopagus? That there are the times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
That is what we are to take away from chapter 3, that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything, and we must believe in him. We must believe in him. And if we believe in him, we will have eternal life here and now. We have it because of the work of our Savior King, what he has accomplished when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. We can have eternal life here and now because he's not a man that he should lie. But when he promised eternal life, he meant it. These were the true words of the faithful witness. We can have eternal life as a present possession because we can know God now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Though we are of the earth, we can live our lives down here on this earth in greater and greater communion with this great God and King as we are ever shaped into his image and as we eagerly anticipate the day when we will get to enter into the fullness of this eternal life that was secured by, for us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But... If we disobey his command to believe, all that awaits us is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you've never believed upon Christ, I would urge you not to put that off any longer. The text says that the wrath of God remains on you. Those who disobey the call to believe upon the Son That means that every bit as much as belief in Christ equals eternal life right now, a present reality, disobedience to the gospel call means the wrath of God is a present reality for you. It is present. So trust in him. We can flee the wrath to come by falling at the foot of the cross and thrusting ourselves upon Christ. Believe that he's the son of God, that he came to this earth, born of a woman, truly man and truly God, living a perfect, blameless life in your place, going to the cross to bear the wrath of God in your place. Believe that he died, that he was buried and he was resurrected on the third day and that he was taken back up to heaven where he has now been given all things into his possession. Chapter three says, believe in the son of God. God, let's stand. Jesus Christ is superior to everyone and everything because he came to us from heaven. He is the faithful witness. He possesses the spirit without measure and he possesses all things as he rules and reigns over all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for sending your son as a love gift to a world lost in rebellion. We pray that you give us all eyes to see if we have repented and believed, that we would grow in that belief, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord. We pray that we would honor him and call more and more people to obey in this Christ, and that we could see people changed by this gospel. Lord, we thank you for making a way where there was no way for us to be saved. We pray, Lord, that our lives would glorify Christ for his sacrifice. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.